Good evening. As I fulfill the mandate of our city charter to articulate an annual state of the city address, I reflect on the pain that so many in our city have experienced over the last year. The loss of loved ones to a lingering pandemic, the horrors of mass shootings, the sight of encampments and shuttered storefronts, and the struggles of too many families unable to pay rent. Through it all, our community has responded with collective resilience and with faith. San Jose residents have protected themselves and each other by becoming vaccinated at the highest rate of any major U.S. city. More than 4,000 of us volunteered to help our neighbors through SiliconValleyStrong.org in ways big and small, delivering more than 200 million meals to families in need or supporting testing clinics or vaccination outreach. As we saw the impacts of closed school campuses on children without internet access at home, we connected more than 100,000 San Joseans with free Wi-Fi and equipped more than 60,000 students with laptops. We're steadily restoring jobs as numerous employers expand in San Jose, including familiar brands such as Amazon, Apple, Google, Roku, Tesla, and Twitter. And we continue to pull together to confront unprecedented challenges. And for that, I feel deeply grateful to our community, our city team, and to our many partners. I am deeply proud to serve you as your mayor. Now, State of the City addresses typically focus a spotlight on the city's successes. But I'd like to start an honest conversation that begins with our greatest failure, homelessness. I take responsibility for that failure and for every unhoused neighbor who encamps in our parks, our creeks, and our sidewalks. It certainly isn't their fault nor the fault of any of the resourceful nonprofits or staff have collaborated to help more than 4,900 unhoused residents find permanent housing since the beginning of this pandemic. Rather, it's the failure of decisions predicated on the belief that if we just keep doing the same things the same ways, eventually progress would come, contrary to the palpable evidence on our streets. In the Silicon Valley spirit of failing forward, we embrace the lessons of our failure and pivot toward better solutions. Here are a few. First, we've learned that we need more immediate solutions rather than merely waiting for permanent supportive housing to get built to address this crisis. Measure A's passage in 2016 has been helpful, but it gave too many false hope that it would solve homelessness. In reality, the first apartment complex funded with that 2016 measure didn't open its doors in San Jose until 2020. At a cost of more than $750,000 per unit, conventional approaches to building housing will not stretch public resources to address anything more than a small fraction of the need. This crisis demands faster, cheaper, and more nimble solutions while we build permanent housing. When the pandemic first hit, I convened our city team to use our emergency authority to pilot a different approach, what I call quick build apartment communities using prefabricated modular units on public land. We built three such projects in the first year alone not in years, but in months, and not at $800,000 per apartment, but at $110,000 per apartment. We have two more planned under construction and will succeed due to the incredible generosity of Peter and Susanna Powell and John and Sue Sobrato, who committed nearly $15 million to spur our efforts, as well as partners like Destination Home and All Home. We're also accelerating a concept that we first piloted in 2016, buying motels to house our homeless, which has enabled us to move hundreds of unhoused 
through motels into permanent housing. The state of California has since embraced this model. And we now have funding from Governor Newsom's Home Key Initiative to expand motel conversions. Now, we need to embrace what we've learned and scale the impact. I propose that we get 1,000 quick-build apartments under construction or completed by the end of next year and convert 300 more motel rooms by that time. Doing so will get more people off the street faster and more cost-effectively than we could before. Uh, Ludia, thank you for talking with us today about your experiences. Um, we're here now at the Evans Lane uh, community. So you, uh, you originally moved into the San Jose area as a child, is that right? Yes. Tell us about that. You lived in the Berryess area for a while? Yes, yeah, so um, when I was about 10 or 11, I moved, my parents moved us to um, Milpitas. Mm. And we stayed there for a period of time, and then we moved into the um, Berryessa area where we stayed until I was, what, like 16, mm. something like that. And then they moved, and I ended up moving on my own. So you lived much of your life here in San Jose? Yes. Now, some horrible things happened in your family that yes. caused you to get pushed into homelessness. Do you want to share any of that with us? Sure. Um, approximately about three years ago, um, some people came to my house and they shot my grandson and almost shot my other grandson. So, you know, for their safety, I immediately moved to San Jose where I immediately became homeless. But like I say, I have a, you know, support team here. So, you know, they, you know, they helped me to keep me from, you know, losing it, should I say. Yeah, you've had a brutally challenging recent couple of years. Uh, yes. How do you feel about the future? Um, moving forward, I feel good. Um, like I say, my most important thing is getting stable housing, mm -hmm. safe, stable housing for me and my grandkids and moving forward then I don't have to worry about anything I can move on find me a job do what I need to do tell us a little bit then about the staff and your experience here the staff here is awesome anything I need help with whether it's filling out an application um, help housing search um, just about anything I need that they're able to do, they, they do it for me. So that's why this program is so awesome for me because they have really went a long ways to help me. Yeah. And I very much appreciate it. So you took your grandsons out of a horrible, dangerous situation so they could be safer. Yes. You're now here yes. at an Evans Lane. Um, Tell us about your family here and, and how things have gone over the last five months. Um, it's been great because where I was, um, I was in a, um, called a pop-up shelter mm -hmm. and we were divided by tarps. Mm -hmm. So when we moved here, it was awesome and I get to cook, so. 
I yeah. love that we have a washer and dryer on site. Yeah. I don't have to, you know, get up and go because I like to do it in the morning. I could just get up and come and do my washing and get that out of the way and have the rest of my day. Yeah. To get these and other such projects built, we will need to identify many more sites, which requires collaboration of some very reluctant neighborhoods. That brings me to our second failure. We've chained ourselves to overly rigid processes. A countywide process known as the coordinated entry system matches unhoused residents with services and prioritizes housing for those county residents who appear most vulnerable out on the street. Both are important objectives. But applied too rigidly, this coordinated entry mandate prevents any neighborhood from seeing the direct benefits of constructing housing for the homeless nearby. Because the system may prioritize homeless from some other city over unhoused residents in their midst in their own community. That rigidity undermines neighborhood support for housing projects, and it also disincents suburban towns from doing their part to house the unhoused in their own communities. Working with our county and the housing authority, we will continue to push for flexibility and coordinated entry to better incentivize every neighborhood to participate in solutions to our homelessness crisis. And we've already made modest progress. Third, too often we've built these projects for unhoused residents without fully understanding their needs and how we can best help them get back on their feet. With a quick build project near Guadalupe River Park, we're embracing a different approach incorporating the insights of those with lived experience of homelessness on an advisory board created by Destination Home. We've also failed to create enough pathways for those unhoused residents who have the ability to get back on their feet quickly. For some of our homeless, a job can do far more than the most well-intentioned programs. We launched San Jose Bridge, employing unhoused residents to clean and beautify the city under the direction of two nonprofit partners, Goodwill, and downtown streets team. Participants have removed 310,000 pounds of debris and trash at 70 of our trash hotspots throughout the city. And they earn paychecks and receive services that help several find new jobs with local employers such as Caltrans, Green Waste, and Tesla. We're now expanding the program to 100 unhoused participants. Let's take a look at this innovative program now. Hi, I'm Sam Licardo. I'm here with Pablo Gaxiola, and we are here with a team of men and women working as part of Goodwill's effort in our San Jose Bridge program. And Pablo, you are the director. Well, tell us about your role here uh, and, and at Goodwill and what you're doing. So at Goodwill, I'm the director of our reentry services, yeah. as well as our career technical education and I oversee the San Jose Bridge Project efforts for our litter abatement crew. Um, as you started this effort with the first group of unhoused residents, uh, tell me about how you got up and running in this effort to help beautify our city, really leveraging the energy of these men and women who want to get back on their feet. At Goodwill and myself, we, we genuinely believe that if you give people a level of responsibility, then they'll rise to it. So coming out to work, we set a time that we would show up to work, we would set a time that we would leave the site, and then we set a time that we would come back to work. And being in the work, in the work field, we started out just doing litter abatement, picking up trash with litter sticks. And then we started recognizing that since we were out here anyway, there was some more stuff that we could do. Mm. So we started doing a little bit of light, mat, light landscaping, um, uh, turned into 
using tools, weed whackers, blowers, and we took a look at just not just using the tools, but using those as training opportunities for mm. folks to be able to learn a new skill set. And then once they learn that skill set, we said, hey, we have a model here that we could now take folks that are once homeless, they've been working, and transition them into other jobs like landscaping where we could, they could take the skills that they're learning in the workforce and learning on the job here and transition those into, into a job for themselves. We have a, a business development team at Goodwill whose main and primary job is to go out into the community and um, seek out network employers that are, that are seeking uh, employees and, and really can benefit from working with the community-based organization to transition people yeah. into employment. So places like Tesla that was always hire, hiring, um, Caltrain's does a good job of, of um, taking the work that we start here and transitioning folks into there. Um, but also a company uh, called Brightview, which mm -hmm. is a, a huge landscaping company in this area. They've hired some of our folks as well and, and, and got us thinking about being able to use this as a training program to trans transition folks out. So we're here at 680 in Mayberry right now. We've got a crew working pretty far behind us. What are they doing back there? First thing they do is they'll go back and they'll do litter abatement. So they, they clean the general area, um, litter sticking and picking up trash, but then taking a look at the service road that goes back there. Since we're out here already, what they actually did back there is they, they chopped down some of the some of the extra tree areas and whatnot, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they're gonna start cleaning it out and pulling it back. We've got a crew, how many folks are you working with now? Right now we have we have a, a crew of 12 people. Yeah. Um, I think that we can expand that more, be able to make more of an impact in the in the areas that we clean up on. But more importantly, I think we could do a better job of connecting individuals that are already working yeah. and then bridging them into 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 housing. The standard bringing in um, individuals that have kind of been through the program, both of my lead drivers, they started off as crew members, learned the, learned the route, learned the roles, um, were able to get their license back, um, and then and were, were really able to earn their way into being a leadership role, so showing leadership out on the job site to begin with, and then you know when, when situations arise, they, they come to you and say, hey, I'm ready to drive or I'm ready to lead this crew. You give people an opportunity and it makes a difference. And so Pablo, you've seen the success working with a relatively small crew of a dozen folks. If we invest more in this program, could we help a lot more people? Tell me what we could do. Most definitely, I think that um, you know more money and more resources to be able to grow upon what we're doing is definitely going to be a good thing. Um, creating opportunities to help more people, and not just the impact that we're able to make on you know the areas that we clean up and, and beautifying San Jose in a better way, but also the the message that we send out to the homeless community in a larger capacity. So as I said earlier, when we pull up. We have homeless folks that are eating meals and trying to get connected to resources. And instead of seeing five to 10 or 12 people jumping out of vans, they see 30 or 40. And I think that that's where we start to make a movement and start really sending that clear message out there that as a city and as a, as a, as a community-based organization, that we want to create opportunities for people to grow, get their dignity back, and, and eventually move into housing and on a permanent basis. In the weeks ahead, We'll push to ensure every hardworking member of the San Jose Bridge team gets housed, and we'll find ways to expand the program with federal dollars. Finally, beyond our unhoused, many more thousands of our families struggle every month to pay rent. We must do more to make San Jose more affordable for all. We can start by rapidly expanding housing supply, but not by inundating our neighborhoods with density that merely exacerbates traffic-choking sprawl with the construction of more high-density housing near transit hubs. In partnership 
with Google, for example, we'll see 4,000 high-density apartments built around the Deardon station area, 1,000 of which will be rent-restricted and affordable. We can also end decades-old legal battles with the city of Santa Clara and fulfill long-standing plans for thousands of transit-oriented homes amid retail and jobs along the light rail corridor in North San Jose. We can also better inform our families about the availability of affordable housing in our city. We have launched an online portal to help folks find rent-restricted housing here. And you can access an early version of this site at housing.sanjoseca.gov. Finally, we'll better utilize the scarce land that we have by encouraging the construction of more backyard homes, or what are known as ADUs. Since we launched our efforts to streamline permitting for backyard homes and to partner with builders of less expensive prefabricated models, we've seen the annual permitting of backyard homes skyrocket from a handful a half decade ago to nearly 400 this year. In the year ahead, we'll identify financial partners willing to help modest income homeowners finance backyard homes of their own. Together, we can build a San Jose more affordable for all. Next, I'd like to discuss our community safety. San Jose residents have endured diverse and daunting set of threats in recent years, including a pandemic, three mass shootings, apartment fires, a flood, and wildfires. And through it all, we've invested more than ever in our public safety infrastructure. After a loss of some 600 San Jose police officers through the Great Recession, we've rebuilt our police force with more than 300 officers through a historic agreement over pension reform and voter support for two ballot measures. We've expanded our civilian core of community service officers who take the workload off our police by responding to nonviolent crimes, problem solving, and collecting evidence at the scene. Our community support for Measure T in 2018 has enabled us to begin construction of an emergency communication center, several new fire stations, and a fire training facility. Under Chief Robert Sapien, our fire department's response to emergency medical calls has made dramatic improvements due to the use of new technology new training and improved protocols. And we've invested in the human and technological infrastructure to improve our preparedness to threats ranging from cyber attacks to earthquakes. Now last year I declined to heed calls from protesters to defund our police department because San Jose already has America's most thinly staffed major city department. Our neighborhoods invariably tell us that they want to see more police patrols in their neighborhoods, not fewer. Yet the advocates of defunding were fundamentally right about one fact. We can improve safety in creative ways that don't always require a badge or a gun. That's why we expanded the community service officer program early in my term. And more recently, why we halted police enforcement on high school campuses to let educators take the lead on student discipline. We partnered with the county to enlist trained mental health providers to work with SJPD to respond to residents experiencing mental distress, giving birth to the mobile crisis response team in 2020. This year, we're deploying Conservation Corps members to put more eyes on the newly opened Coyote Creek Trail to report problems and to deter crime. With a community task force underway, we'll explore more alternatives to policing to keep us all safer. We can also build trust by improving transparency and accountability. In recent months, we've expanded the authority and scope of our independent police auditor, in part through voters' recent approval of Measure G and through negotiations with our officers' union. The police auditor can now independently question officers suspected of misconduct and will have unfettered access to police reports and body-worn video. 
We've also improved the police disciplinary process, ensuring that the findings of arbitrators in disputed cases will be made public and that retired judges can adjudicate these disputes. In the year ahead, I'll push to give the independent police auditor broader authority to investigate officer misconduct. We're also finding novel ways to reduce gun violence in our community. In June, the council approved an ordinance to require gun stores to videotape sales to deter gangs and other criminal organizations from using straw purchasers to illegally acquire firearms. We're also forging ahead with two groundbreaking proposals. The first would require liability insurance for gun ownership in the same way that drivers are required to have auto insurance to compensate victims for harm. Just as auto insurance made driving safer by encouraging safer driving and airbags and ABS brakes, so too gun insurance can incentivize firearms, safety classes, trigger locks, and gun safes. Each of those steps could make gun ownership safer in a nation in which 4.6 million children live in a home where guns are kept loaded and unlocked. Second, I urge council to make San Jose the first city in the nation to require gun owners to pay fees to compensate taxpayers for the cost of police and emergency medical response to gunshots. While the Second Amendment protects the rights of Americans to own guns, it doesn't mandate that taxpayers subsidize that right. And gun violence response costs the city nearly $40 million per year and elicits a much higher human toll from our community. Sharon will share why this effort is so critical for our community. I'm Sam Ricardo. I'm here with Sharon Jenkin, and we're going to have a conversation about gun violence in our community. Uh, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Sharon, you're a retired teacher, having served our community for many years as a principal and uh, educator. Tell us a bit about how you became involved in Moms Demand Action as a volunteer. So I actually became involved after the shooting in Parkland. I'm the mom of now an 18-year-old son who was a bit younger at the time. And I was just so horrified at the idea that my son could be the victim of gun violence and had to live with that kind of fear. And I was so inspired by the students and their activism that encouraged me to join Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Tell me a little bit about your work with, with Moms Demand Action. So my role right now is as a California state lead for community partnerships and outreach. I work with leads throughout the state on forming uh, partnerships with community groups that are doing the work on the streets with people who are disproportionately affected by gun violence. And you are one of those people who have been horribly affected by gun violence. Do I you am. Absolutely. So my sister Judy, I have a photograph here of my sister Judy, was beautiful, brilliant. She had done all but her PhD, was absolutely my best friend and one of the lights of my life. She had a long-term partner of many, many years and who was ill and died of natural causes. Unfortunately, she was so overcome with grief that she crawled into bed next to him and reached under the mattress where the gun was not safely stored and shot herself to death. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that had her gun been sa safely stored and if she had had adequate access to mental health care, my sister would still be alive and I miss her every day. 
It's been 15 years. I'm so sorry. Your experience, sadly, has been repeated throughout our community, throughout our country, too many times. It's suicide, of course. Uh, we know uh, by gun uh, it's happening 16,000 times uh, per year in our country. Some of the things you've been pushing for, uh, we've all been pushing for, um, could help uh, perhaps prevent some horrible tragedy like what happened with your sister. Can you tell us a little bit about how, for example, ensuring that we have safe gun storage uh, and, uh, and trigger locks and other mechanisms to prevent impetuous use of, of, of guns, how, how that could help us? Absolutely. So as I said, suicide is generally an impulsive decision. And unfortunately, firearm suicide is incredibly effective. 85% of people who attempt suicide with a gun result in fatal injuries, whereas only about 5% of suicide attempts using other means are fatal. So having access to a gun is really significant in the fatality rate um, of suicide attempts. And statistics show that something like 90% of people who attempt suicide and survive do not attempt suicide again. So having access to mental health, but also having the gun securely stored, which does not mean under the mattress, does not mean up in a closet where teens have access to it, where kids, even if we think that people don't know where we've hidden our guns, our children always know where we hide things. I know that as a parent. Um, so having them secured safely, locked in a gun safe or with a gun lock and the ammunition stored separately can be the difference between life and death can save so many lives. And that is a huge part of why I do this work. It's important that we also discuss a fast-growing threat to our collective safety, methamphetamine. Although the opiate epidemic captured national media attention over the last several years, our county's emergency rooms admit three times more people using methamphetamine than opiates and meth-related heart failure has exploded sixfold in the last decade. Over the course of just a few days in August, seven unhoused residents died from using a toxic combination of meth and fentanyl. Every day, our San Jose police officers encounter seemingly psychotic episodes, screaming, threats, broken windows, and hallucination-induced assaults, all resulting from acute or long-term meth intoxication. In one survey, the drug was associated with 60% of the arrests by our street crimes unit. Our rise in aggravated and sexual assaults over the last year appears at least partly attributable to this drug, particularly when the victims are homeless. Unfortunately, we lack treatment options for methamphetamine addicts with a dearth of detoxification and inpatient treatment beds countywide. We also lack a criminal justice system that will do much of anything with meth-addicted arrestees beyond releasing them within hours of the time when they're arrested. And of course, they're arrested by understandably frustrated San Jose police officers who see them back on the street in a couple hours into communities of even more frustrated residents. These decisions lie well beyond the authority of City Hall. 
So in the year ahead, I'll be focusing on bringing together stakeholders to address the largely ignored methamphetamine epidemic that is taking too many lives and imperiling too much of our safety. While we must focus on the basics, like addressing safety and homelessness, we should also appreciate that San Jose is more than simply a place we live. It's our home. Not merely to us, but to our families, our loved ones, our friends. Our hometown should capture our heart. When we stop and think about the cities we love, our thoughts don't turn to whatever we experience while chained to the steering wheel on an expressway. We savor those moments walking a city, perhaps capturing a view of an inspiring skyline, but more likely experiencing the spaces between the buildings, in the parks, the paseos, the plazas. It's in those places where we might encounter a relaxing outdoor cafe, a bustling farmer's market, or an entertaining street performer. It's these public spaces that captivate us. Yet too many of our public spaces have been anything but delightful when we see trash and blight and graffiti that make our city feel less lovable. I'll focus first on renewed efforts to combat blight. Council approved my budget proposal this year to invest in our beautified SJ cleanup efforts as never before. Our rapid junk hauling team responded to 23,707 illegal dumping calls, totaling nearly 6 million pounds over the last year. And our graffiti teams have cleaned more than 2.2 million square feet of graffiti from public spaces. We urge everyone to download our free 311 app to request free junk pickup in front of your home and to report any dumping, graffiti, or blight so that we can respond. Our unhoused neighbors too often unfairly blamed for dumping and blight caused by unscrupulous contractors or other residents, they often tell me they want to be part of the solution. As I mentioned earlier, we're expanding our San Jose Bridge initiative to employ more unhoused residents to clean and beautify our city. Yet funding constraints limit the scale of this effort and mental and physical illness impedes many unhoused from working reliably. So we're trying a different approach as well. It's called cash for trash. We provide unhoused residents with trash bags, and if they fill them and leave them at designated spots for pickup, we'll pay them $4 for every bag by digitally reloading a debit card provided by MasterCard. More than 300 unhoused participants have collected more than 486,000 pounds of trash since we launched the initiative a few months ago. It has become a model for dozens of other cities grappling with the same challenges around their encampments. These initiatives combined with other Beautify SJ partnerships, have forged with thousands of volunteers and nonprofits like Conservation Corps, the South Bay Clean Creeks Coalition, Keep Coyote Beautiful, and Trash Punks. They're all beginning to have an impact. Obviously, we still have much more work to do to restore San Jose's beauty, and we will. As vaccinations help us reemerge in our public spaces, we're launching San Jose Abierto to celebrate our opening and to reintroduce our residents to our city. We've partnered with artists and musicians to bring thousands of people outside to our parks, our streets, and our plazas. We expanded our wildly successful Viva Calle event, transforming San Jose's streets into America's largest park for cycling, roller skating, skateboarding, and just play four times a year. Throughout the year, thousands have been delighted by San Jose Symphony's resumption of its outdoor pops concerts at San Jose State University. San Jose Jazz's boombox truck visiting our local parks the new ballet performing on an outdoor stage with San Jose Taiko, and food trucks and craft vendors creating a weekly pop-up night market at the Tully Ball Fields. 
Hi everyone, Phil Maresca from Philco Events and welcome to the Tully Night Market. Thanks to Abierto funding, we are able to take this dark and scary parking lot and every Thursday night we make it into this active, fun market for the community. We have food trucks, we have mariachi, we have a stage with live music, and Viva Parks is up on the hill with fun and games, and we have up to 30 vendors every week selling their wares. So it's great for the community, there's local businesses, it's very family friendly, and we invite you all to come down and join us. The pandemic has prided us to reimagine our public spaces, taking advantage of San Jose's 300 magnificent days of annual sunshine. Last year, we created San Jose Al Fresco to bring hundreds of restaurants and gyms, cafes, and retailers outdoors to our sidewalks, our streets, our parking lots to keep small businesses alive while they enliven our streetscape. As you'll see, opening San Pedro Street to restaurants like Oya Casina has helped keep their doors open. I'm Maria Zertucci. I'm the general manager here at Oya Cocina. I've uh, been here for about six months or so. Well, I, brought, I was brought in once they reopened. We were closed for a few months. Um, you know, I was used to the whole full service model. So when I came here, for me, it was a big step from being full service to over the counter. But it was easy for me to adjust because, you know, we want to provide that, you know, casual experience, fast experience. Um, but also be able to train everyone in this position to be able to help everyone out. Once the pandemic hit, I think the hardest thing that, you know, as a, as a general manager I ever had to experience was uh, laying people off. You know, it was the hardest part of my job, you know, because a lot of people depended on, you know, this, this uh, company. So once we you know had to let them know we were laying them off it was a very hard news for everyone we had to kind of you know have a different strategy because we didn't have the full you know capacity of the restaurant one and we didn't have all the crew anymore so we had to kind of go bare bone as we could to be able to maintain the restaurant uh, open through the pandemic mm -hmm. and as you handle takeout eventually you found different ways to serve people while they came to the restaurant. How did that work out? For a long period of time, once we started doing patio, uh, outside patio dining, uh, you know, we had to bring people back. So it was, it was a challenge because people, you know, had to have different sorts of income. So they had to find a different job opportunities anywhere. So we couldn't bring those same staff back. So we had to hire you know, new people and retrain them and not having that staff really affected because we really weren't prepared for all that. We brought in, you know, servers, some were able to come back, some were able to go some, you know, a different location as cashiering or any other, you know, work, like essential worker job that we had during that pandemic. So, you know, when we brought people back, uh, you know, we, we started retraining them on, you know, we're, there's no more busters, there's no more expos, there's no more hostess. So, you know, we had to do, you know, what, you know, we had to do the job of five people. <laughs> you moved this model from indoor dining to outdoor dining. Did that put, did that create new challenges for you in running the restaurant? It did, you know, because once we had to shut down again, we had to lay all these people off again, you know, we had to lay all the staff 
you know, servers, you know, when once they were all excited to come back, now it's the bad news to lay them off again. So people transitioned to serving and to cashiering. So we had to retrain them in a different position. Right. I feel like a lot of people feel more comfortable doing the outdoor dining. Um, a lot of people like, you know, the, the atmosphere outside. We have a really nice setup in the patio. Um, we have the heaters right now since it's a little bit cold now, but you know, everybody really enjoys the outdoor patio. Do you think that closing the street to car traffic, has that helped your business or do you think it's hurt the business? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when we had traffic come in, a lot of people would look at the restaurants, but now we have people walking through, especially when we have events like the Sharks game that we're going on now, and we have a lot of concerts now, you know, we, there's a lot of um, famous artists doing their concerts here at the SAP Center, so we do see a lot of people coming in. Maria, since we launched this Alfresco program, have you heard much from other folks who are running restaurants in the San Pedro area, whether it's health Yes, I do believe there's a few of the restaurant next door. We have the restaurant on the other side here that they benefit from that as well. I believe we also had that um, there was a, a rule that the health department also did was we're not able to serve alcohol unless they're doing, uh, unless they're having something to eat. So that restaurant benefited, you know, because the, the next door one is bringing food to them. So, you know, we as a community, I think we, we came together to be able to to go past this pandemic. <laughs> We've also rediscovered the importance of our trails and parks, which will become a growing focus in the months ahead. We have a once in a generation opportunity to use music to reinvigorate San Jose's only federally designated historic district, St. James Park, to bring dozens of live performances to an open air theater. At Powell Park and Stadium, San Jose State University President Mary Papazian has forged a partnership with the city. They'll have student athletes bringing Speed City to East San Jose and creating new opportunities for our youth to engage with these wonderful role models. At the western edge of our downtown, we celebrate Google's inventive approach to placemaking, connecting public trails and parks while creating open air gathering spaces around retail, restaurants, and artisan workshops. Just to the north, we've launched an effort to restore the Guadalupe River Park, starting with rehousing hundreds of residents there. And ideas are emerging to transform the park into a large urban farm. Far to the south in Coyote Valley, we're planning an incredible open space preserve for the enjoyment of future generations. Finally, as we look toward the public space and most visible to all of us, our skyline, our downtown will undergo an incredible transformation in the coming decade. Rob Steinberg and David Hart's recent work on the inspiring Miro Towers has set a new bar for our city. Increasingly, builders such as West Bank, Urban Community, Jay Paul, and Boston Properties are bringing visionary architects to San Jose from across the globe, such as Tokyo's Kengo Kuma, Vancouver's James Chung, and Denmark's Bjark Ingels, all of whom will paint downtown's canvas with startling designs and an explosion of vertical greenery. An inspiring skyline provides another important ingredient for a city in which we can all find delight. Finally, I'd like to turn to my favorite topic, our city's future. Two essential components of that future deserve our attention, our planet and our people. First, our planet. Cities generate 70% of our global greenhouse gas emissions. The most important work on climate change then takes place in local communities. This year, San Jose became America's largest city to establish a goal of reaching carbon neutrality by 2030. 
We have four strategies for reaching that audacious goal. First, to grow sustainably. Second, to green the grid. Third, to electrify the economy. And fourth, to adapt for drought amid a changing climate. First, growing sustainably. It requires reducing transportation-related emissions by halting development in our hillsides and open spaces and intensifying dense development in downtown and near transit lines. In 2018, we successfully worked together with a coalition of environmental organizations and neighborhood leaders and community groups to protect our hillsides and open spaces in battles over two voter-approved ballot measures. The same year, we assembled a plan with the Peninsula Open Space Trust and the Open Space Authority to preserve the bucolic Coyote Valley. And voter approval of our Measure T enabled the purchase of more than 900 acres in Coyote. This year, Council approved general plan revisions that will preserve the rest of North and Mid Coyote Valley for recreational trails and open space for our children, safe drinking water for our city, and protected habitat for local wildlife. Second, greening the grid. That requires finding zero emission alternatives to fossil fuels for our power. With the 2018 launch of our electric utility, San Jose Clean Energy, San Jose became the largest U.S. city with a community choice energy program, giving our residents the option to choose greener sources of electricity. As a result, renewable and hydroelectric sources will produce 92% of our electricity this year and will continue the push to get to 100% in the years ahead. Now that we've created a source of green power for our residents and businesses, we face the task of electrifying our fossil fuel economy. We recently became America's largest city to require all electric utilities in new residential and commercial buildings. Our work ahead will focus on incentivizing electric retrofits for homes and businesses. Homeowners can take advantage of our online applications for home solar and battery storage installations and get permits issued the same day they apply online. We're also making it easier to conserve. Using Ohm Connect software platform, we've engaged more than 3,000 residents to reduce their use of peak period energy by 40,000 kilowatt hours, saving them money while saving our planet of 28 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions. Our largest source of emissions, though, is transportation. Achieving sustainability requires big investments in mass transit. I quit my job 21 years ago to work on the first ballot measure to bring BART to San Jose. And I'm proud to have worked with Carl Guardino in advocating and raising dollars for every measure since in 2008, 2016, and 2018. VTA re recently celebrated its opening of our first BART station in Berryessa. And this year, we can begin tunnel construction to finally bring BART downtown and on to Santa Clara. We're also under construction on a transit extension along Capitol Expressway to Eastridge, and finally, this year we'll have the opportunity to select an innovative transit concept in a private-public partnership to build a long-awaited connection to San Jose Mineta International Airport, showcasing a futuristic transit technology worthy of Silicon Valley's urban center. Transit isn't the only way for us to drive toward a zero-emission future, however. San Jose has the highest rate of electric vehicle deployment in the United States, and the recent installation of more than 2,000 new publicly accessible car chargers will accelerate our community's transition. And for those of us who prefer two wheels over four, we've just completed 400 miles of bike lanes, and we're steadily adding lane separations to our street infrastructure citywide to improve safety. Of course, we cannot discuss our shared environmental future without talking about water. Recent rains bring modest relief 
but this drought and future droughts remain with us. We need to invest scarce public dollars in more sustainable approaches to providing drinking water to our city, such as through recycling, and away from bloated projects like Valley Water's $2 billion Pacheco Dam, because the district's own experts concluded that the reservoir's narrow catchment area won't add a single drop of new water supply to our region. Instead, we have a proven effective alternative, an extensive recycled water system, and an advanced purification plant that already produces 8 million gallons of purified water daily. Dramatically expanding that purification capacity can enable us to pump clean water back into our underground aquifers, providing a renewable drinking water resource for future generations. Until we secure more recycled and purified water for our future, though, please conserve and give the yard watering a rest. Finally, we share a moral responsibility to invest in our most valuable natural resource, our young people. Implicit in this commitment is an imperative that we too often ignore. We must stop incurring debt that spends our children's money for them. Throughout my tenure, we've reduced the financial burden on future generations by eliminating the debt in our city's golf courses and hotel, by eliminating hundreds of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance on our roads, reducing interest costs through refinancing of billions in debt and securing a pension reform package that will save taxpayers nearly $3 billion over three decades. Much credit goes to three women at City Hall who have led this work. Our new city manager, Jennifer McGuire, finance director, Julia Cooper, and human resources director, Jabber Shembri. Our responsibility to our youth also requires a commitment to their health, such as by enacting a citywide ban on flavored tobacco or enlisting San Jose State students to build out a website, onesj.org, to provide access for youth to mental health services so critical during this pandemic. Yet our greatest contribution to our children's future lies in eliminating longstanding disparities in education and opportunity, such as our recent expansions of summer learning programs for underserved youth. Above all, I'm particularly proud of three initiatives, digital inclusion, the Resilience Corps, and San Jose Aspires. Let's talk about each one briefly. First, digital inclusion. Amid a pandemic that left more than 60,000 San Jose students unable to learn remotely, we partnered with Eastside Union High School District to accelerate the build-out of a community Wi-Fi system that provides free broadband connectivity to more than 100,000 residents in East San Jose. We're on pace to connect more than 300,000 residents population equivalent of the city the size of St. Louis or Pittsburgh by the end of 2022. Working with our schools and with device refurbishers like Revivin, we've distributed hotspots and laptops to tens of thousands of students, effectively closing the digital divide for our current students. Of course, many adults still lack computer skills needed in our economy. But as this clip shows, our digital literacy efforts with adults through community organizations like Goodwill will expand their opportunity as well. Now, you became part of what's called the NOW program here at Goodwill a couple of years ago. Yes. Want to tell us about how you got involved in the program? So I got involved through, I was a participant in the NOW program, and then I went through the construction class training, mm -hmm. and then I became core employee, and then that's when I heard about the digital inclusion with Athena. I am the digital inclusion coordinator with Goodwill Silicon Valley, and with our program, we're able to 
connect households with affordable internet, digital literacy training, and devices. So in partnership with the City of San Jose and the California Emerging Technology Fund, uh, Goodwill has supported over 120 households connect um, to sustainable internet and provide uh, laptops and training. And our goal is to reach um, over 200 households. With our program, it's been really fulfilling seeing um, clients who are really just afraid of you know, using that touchpad, um, clicking on items on their laptops and everything, and then going in, practicing using their trackpad, drawing butterflies, and um, uploading those images to forms so that way they can practice their job search without even um, like the pressure of like applying to a job. Having internet access has been proven to really be so critical as an essential need for households, especially over the past two years where um, our participants are really facing a barrier to even having healthcare access, access to jobs, and um, being able to connect with others without that internet connection. So with this program, it's been really, it's been really great to see people be able to, you know, have that access again and being able to connect with others around them. You had a job transition of your own and then you came in and started working at Goodwill and it was here at Goodwill that you started this digital inclusion program, is that yes. right? Yes, yes. Great, now did you have all the tools you needed, all the the access and the, and the devices you need to get online? Absolutely not. Okay, so how did they help you with that? Well, it was kind of funny. I was, um, one day I get a call from an instructor, Athena, you know, she's like, hey, you know, are you, do you have internet? Do you have a device? And I was like, Who's, how'd you get my information? You know, why are you calling me? <laughs> but, um, so I didn't have a device. I didn't have internet or anything. So um, I was like, oh, what? she said, I got your information from Goodwill. I said, okay. So she said, if you're interested, give me a call back. So I ended up in this class. It was like 10 hours. It was one hour a day because I was working here. So I took the whole class, got the device, got the hotspot. You know, I had no idea how to send emails or upload files or nothing. So how, how is, have these skills helped you here at your job? It helped me because um, there was like a point where there was like a position open for a peer mentor. So um, I was going to school. So I enrolled in school and, you know, through the laptop and everything, I used the laptop for that. but. I went from like a peer mentor to research coordinator to now case manager. So that gave me like, it gave me like the confidence to send proper emails, you know, and like how to like talk to people, how to help people out, how to show them what I learned. Basically like, I'm like, I'm so grateful for everything that Goodwill has done for me for the classes and everything that I try to like help. I try to give everybody the same resources that were offered to me. I try to like just give out all the resources that were given to me at one point and just help them out the same way that everybody helped me out. Second. With unemployment rates among teens and young adults hovering twice as high as the rest of the workforce, we launched Resilience Corps earlier this year. We had a simple goal, to give 500 low-income young adults an opportunity to earn a living wage while serving our community to improve our emergency preparedness and pandemic response. Corps members served as tutors to assist young children recovering from learning loss. They cleared brush and vegetation from wildfire-vulnerable neighborhoods along the urban wildland interface, and they supported vaccination and testing centers throughout the county. As the head of the Big City Mayor's Coalition, I pushed with 12 colleagues for state funding to extend and expand Resilience Corps in California's largest cities to serve more kids, and Governor Newsom included $150 million in his June budget. 
Our young adults and their futures deserve this investment, and I thank the governor for it. Finally, we've embarked on an exciting new initiative, San Jose Aspires. It provides 1,200 high school students from financially struggling families with a digital roadmap to college and money to help offset the cost of tuition. While the average California public high school student receives only about 12 minutes of college counseling between her freshman year and her graduation from high school, San Jose Aspires provides a digital platform that assigns virtual scholar dollars to accomplishments and decisions that are aligned with a college-going path. Upon graduation, those scholar dollars become real dollars that students can use to offset the cost of post-secondary education with the help of more than $8 million in contributions from such donors as Jay Paul, Connie and Bob Lurie, Monica Bickert, and, and David Weiner, and local employers such as Adobe and Apple, Google, PayPal, and Samsung. Stanford University is studying the impacts of this first-in-the-nation initiative and the success of our students can make San Jose a national model for supporting student achievement. Here's a closer look at these amazing students and at our collective opportunity. Only 30% of San Jose students get a post-secondary degree within six years of high school graduation. In Santa Clara County, the ratio of students to high school college counselors is 750 to 1. Two of the greatest barriers to college success for our students are financial and informational. San Jose aspires to bridge the educational equity gap for our communities of color, to reduce the financial burden of college tuition for students from low-income neighborhoods. Through an innovative micro-scholarship platform, we provide students with signposts pointing to actions aligned with college and career success. San Jose Aspires students earn scholar dollars to defray the cost of college, expand their network through mentors and work experience, and learn valuable skills that enable lifelong achievements. San Jose Aspires to uplift our families to empower our next generation of leaders, to help our students achieve their dreams. Aspiro a ser un abogado de inmigración para ayudar a las familias a permanecer juntas y perseguir sus sueños. I aspire to be the first one in my family to go to college and inspire my younger siblings. San Jose Aspires is a personal passion of mine because I can see myself in the students that we serve. I'm an immigrant, grew up in a family of seven kids, and when my family first arrived in America, we only packed one suitcase. It wasn't filled with clothes or travel essentials, it was filled with notebooks. Because my parents knew that the only way to succeed in America was through higher education. My parents only had a third grade education. So I grew up with this immense pressure to succeed and make them proud, yet having really limited resources and guidance on how to get there. My parents thought that it was all about grades. And so in high school, when I wanted to join a club, play sports, or take on an unpaid internship, they felt that these were luxuries that we couldn't afford. I'm really fortunate that I made it to college, but I know a lot of my peers didn't. And the journey to higher education really shouldn't feel like such a stab in the dark. Our kids need the tools and resources in order to pave their path towards success. 
That's why I'm so excited that San Jose Aspires has raised over $8 million and will be serving nearly 1,200 students next year who are from low-income, first-generation backgrounds. As excited as we are with the success and thankful to our philanthropic partners who have really stepped up to make this happen, we know that we need to do more to expand this program to even more students. So we're really looking for more partners who will join us in this mission to create more equitable opportunities for our youth citywide. For all of our challenges, San Jose's future has never shown brighter. The opportunities for San Jose are the envy of every other city in the nation. I've provided you with a glimpse of some of our work so far and of our work together in the year ahead. I hold my service to you as my greatest professional honor, and I relish the privilege of continuing to serve you. God bless you and our city of San Jose. Happy holidays.